Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about pelvic floor dysfunction and painful sex. Before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues with painful intercourse, please see your healthcare provider. And I'm not giving any type of religious advice. So if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So today I am super excited to have on with me Dr. Tayyaba Ahmed. She is a PMNR physician. What does that stand for? It's physical medicine and yep. rehab, right? Yes, yes. So I'm super excited to have her on, and I will let uh, Dr. Ahmad introduce herself. So um, I am a physical medicine and rehab doctor. A lot of people don't know what that is because it's also called a physiatrist, and sometimes people confuse us with psychiatrist or podiatrist. Um, so it is not, a lot of people are like, what's PMNR? Um, but I did my training at NYU at re, um, in rehab. When I graduated, there was literally no pelvic rehab. There was no talk of it, no word of it. Um, I graduated, a couple, one of my colleagues, she had some pelvic pain postpartum and she asked if I wanted to follow her, shadow her. We were like attendings and I started, I got into it and she created a practice. It's called Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine and I've been with her since the beginning and we are treating pelvic floors in both men and women. Um, and we're treating pelvic floor dysfunction, the good and the bad. Um, so what I do, I mean, should I go into it? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to treat this kind of like when I talk to patients, because a lot of people don't really understand. So if you have, you have a pelvic floor, whether you're male or female or anything in between, and your pelvic floor travels between your pubic bone and your tailbone, and it holds up your bladder, your uterus, or your descending colon, and in uh, males, your prostate. These pelvic floors are really important to be able to contract and expand like a bicep contracts and expands. Um, it has to do what it should in order to pee, poop and have sex. And if it doesn't and it's tight and contracted, it's going to hurt. And if it's loosey goosey, you might have weakness. And because of that weakness, your pelvic floor might 
cause some leaking. Um, but there are also people who have tight pelvic floors that are also weak because a weak muscle is actually a tight muscle is actually weak because it is not it doesn't have the energy to do a contraction or an expansion. So both sets of pelvic floor muscles can be weak, one's tight, one's loose, and then you kind of want to stay in, in the middle. Nice expansion, contraction pelvic floor that doesn't cause pain, that's not causing having leakage. Um, so classically, people think the loosey-goosey pelvic floor is the lady who's had three, three babies, who's on a trampoline, sneezing, jumping, laughing, and having leakage. And then also grandma in Depends diapers who's 70, 80 years old, and she's leaking. But as I know, and many of you probably know, women postpartum can also have tight pelvic floor muscles. And so they can um, start to have pain after intercourse, during intercourse, after intercourse. Um, they can also present with a whole slew of symptoms um, related to the bowel bladder and the uh, vaginal walls of the pelvic floor. So that can cause urinary frequency, urinary urgency, hesitation, weak stream, um, constipation, uh, rectal pain, burning at the anus. It can basically cause any problem you can think of between the front to the back, tailbone pain. Um, and so that's basically pelvic floor dysfunction in one sentence. And, you know, anybody can have any issue. So if you have uh, colitis or you have uh, endometriosis or you have any condition that's affecting anything in your pelvis, it can affect those muscles, which can majority of those patients will then also present with pelvic floor dysfunction. So deciphering whether your symptoms are related to your endo or are they relate our endometriosis, which we could talk about also, but um, if you don't know what that is, um, it's a condition in which there's uh, implant tissue outside of the uterus. So in those patients, you can have painful sex, but you can also have painful sex from the pelvic floor dysfunction. So really deciphering where your pelvic, your painful sex is coming from is really important because if you're not figuring out the, the real root, then you're still going to have problems. And if you only fix one, you're not going to fix both. I love that. You know what I think is so important that you mentioned uh, that we don't really hear very often is that men can also have pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and that is something that I guess in my realm, I really don't, you know, deal with men. So I don't really hear about that. But I, I, rarely hear that at all. So if you could tell us what type of problems that you see with men that have pelvic floor dysfunction, I would assume it probably something similar. Do they have problems going to the bathroom or painful sex? So same thing. Um, majority of my male patients, I actually had a Muslim male patient last week, and it's usually related to lifting heavy weights. A lot of uh, younger guys oh. um, are heavy lifting, because of that, they're creating intra-abdominal pressure in their groin, sometimes developing hernias, some hernias now causing pain, referring down to the genitals. Um, there's also a slew of them that are having pain from trauma, from masturbating, uh, using penile pumps, um, doing things like uh, reverse Kegels. So a lot of like jelking, a lot of things that are experimental let's let's just put it that way they're they're doing things they're usually in their teens or their 20s or their 30s and or they have these issues from when they were 18 19 and then never told anyone about it and now they're presenting in their 30s saying i still have this issue what can i do now 
uh, that it's been 10 years. Or since then, I've now developed urinary problems, rectal problems, constipation problems, rectal pain. Because what I tell patients is if you think of it, the pelvic floor is a hammock. If you start affecting the front, it'll slowly work its way to the back. So just because you're having stuff with just sexual issues now, you know, a year, two, three years later, you're going to present with urinary symptoms. And I call it the trifecta when you come in with all three. Um, and that's actually probably the easiest to treat because as things are so bad, it's a lot easier, like things start to go away. And you're like, oh my God, I'm getting better. But when it's like kind of localized to one area, it's like, okay, let's just focus on that problem. Um, but yeah, men, men are always diagnosed with prostatitis. They're told they have prostatitis. Um, they're given a ton of antibiotics no improvement. Um, and a lot of times their pelvic floor dysfunction is totally misdiagnosed. Um, and no one's really treating it. There's not like the, I'm in Manhattan, New York, where there is a dime a dozen pelvic PTs. There's one on every corner. I mean, you literally can like throw a ball and there'll be a pelvic PT there, but outside of New York, you know, it's not like, it's not like that. So uh, patients are going, they're, they're getting the runaround just like women get the runaround with painful sex. So they're, I'm having penile symptoms. So they're being thrown antibiotics. Oh, have a cystoscopy, get a bladder, bladder uh, test, uh, get all these tests. And majority of them end up coming back negative because their pelvic floor is the issue. Um, and majority of my male patients end up coming through like Reddit. Uh, they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm a true feminist, but I do feel for these men because they go through a lot um, and they don't really have especially Muslim men don't have the support system. Um, you know, they're not going to talk to their parents about this. They are hiding all of their symptoms from masturbating. They are not going to tell anyone they're doing these things. And it becomes really problematic when it's chronic, when it's acute, you know, there's stuff you can do, but when majority 90% of the time that men they come in, it's, they are at the chronic stage when it's over six months and that makes it a lot harder to treat. Now, that doesn't mean if you're hearing this, it's not treatable. It just means that it is harder to treat and you should get treated sooner um, because it can take a lot more things like medication, nerve medications, um, physical therapy, injections to do to, to make things a little bit better. And, and I think also in that younger age group, there's a lot of emotions and things can feel very dramatic and you know when the maturity level in increases it gets a little bit easier to deal with the symptoms this is so amazing Thayba. i mean like i just think that this is something i'd never heard before so you're just blowing my mind <laughs> which is fantastic um so i'm really curious so how do you diagnose so i know right now i'm just i think i'm just stuck on this men <laughs> men having pelvic floor dysfunction um you know, how do you go about diagnosing somebody with pelvic floor dysfunction? I know you mentioned it a little bit. You talked about, you know, you know men get confused with like prostatitis and they're, they're having uh, pain and um, from perhaps masturbation, excessive masturbation or painful sex and things like that. But for men specifically, how do they get diagnosed? And then, you know, definitely I'm, I want to shift over to women. Um, well, it's the same way. Physical exam is really important. So when I do a physical exam, I'm about, I'm a, I'm a physiatrist. I'm not doing it the way GYNs do. I'm doing a musculoskeletal exam. I'm evaluating the spine. I'm evaluating the hips. I'm evaluating 
the groins, I'm evaluating the pubic area, the, the tailbone. So a lot of the exam is internal and a lot of it is external. And so I'm evaluating the muscles, the musculature and making sure and checking to see if there's tightness, the bulbospongiosis muscle, I'm touching all the muscles outside and also inside. Um, you know, there could be some people who think that I should not be treating men, but um, I think they need to be treated. And, you know, that means I have to do a full exam. Of course, no, <laughs> you should definitely treat everyone. Know. You know, there's always going to be um, different thoughts on this. Yeah, on this yeah, I, <laughs> I know what you're saying. I, I understand. But, um, you know, it's in the end, you're a physician, so... You're doing what you need to do. So this is completely fascinating to me. So that's that's really interesting. And um, so aside from, you know, I guess what the other thing I'm thinking about is that, so I have, I have boys and um, one of them is so into lifting. Like it's, <laughs> you know, so what would be something that he would present with? Like if he's having issues from lifting all, the, and he lifts a lot of heavy weights. He's only 14 oh, and he's, you should definitely have him see a trainer so that he is not doing any improper lifting and he knows what his abilities are. Um, it's the excessiveness, the over repetitive use of a muscle, whether it's your finger or it's your foot, you can't overuse a muscle too aggressively. And the thing is, is like, if you work out, and you love working out and you love the endorphins of working out, you think that your body can handle it every single day. Um, and it, you can't, and you have to have rest days and you have to have ab days and leg days. And, and you can't just use all your core muscles all day long because your core is connected to your pelvic floor. So if you're constantly using that core, so I have a, a slew of patients that are the postmenopausal 50 year olds that start going to bar class when they're bored. Um, especially out in the suburbs. I don't know if you get that. It's like the postmenopausal 55, 56 year olds who are like, I'm gonna start going to bar and Pilates and, and they're actively using their core muscles and they're, comp they're going to their GYN saying that I'm now having pain with sex and I'm dry, I must be dry. So they go, they get their vaginal estrogen, the vaginal estrogen's not helping or it helps a little bit, the tissue's a little bit better, but they're still having pain. And then they're Googling, they find me on the web and they end up in my office and I'm like, yeah, so what are you doing? What are your activities? And they're like, oh, I started Peloton. I'm Pelotoning all the time. And I'm doing, I'm doing all of these activities now and I'm working out a lot more and I feel really great. I'm losing weight. But every time I do it, I feel a little bit more pain. That's usually that overactivity of these core muscles. And so uh, obviously like making sure that the weight is not too heavy, making sure that he's got the proper ergonomics when he is working out um, and then he's not doing it too much too soon and like, mm. there is like a stretch after like stretching the muscles out like a like a so he's like you know his body cools down it's relaxed and he's using heat sauna all that stuff because what the worst thing in the world is a 20 year old or a 17 year old lifting weights heavy and then relieves himself by over masturbating and then he's now using these muscles all day long sitting, peeing, pooping. Most of these guys are probably a little bit constipated too. So just, it's like the perfect storm. And then all of a sudden they start with it. 
Such valuable information. So tell me now, I'd love to get into uh, more of the pelvic floor dysfunction with women and, um, you know, what other things you see. So I know that you just mentioned about postmenopausal women and, you know, all of a sudden now going to the gym and lifting all these heavy weights and overuse of the core muscles. Um, what are some other things that we could be doing that, you know, unknowingly is kind of messing up our pelvic floor? Uh, well, we got a huge amount. I mean, I thought during COVID, everything slowed down. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. This is great. Everyone's working from home, but everyone started working from home. So the commute was shorter, but they were sitting all day long on their hearts, mm. on their kitchen tables, poor ergonomics. People never went back to a working in office. Some do, some don't. Um, so the sitting all day long, I have a ton of patients who are now having tailbone pain from sitting all day long. Um, yeah. a ton of patients who are maybe they change their ergonomics and they're working out at home more. And that like that Peloton group of people, um, you know, the, I'm one of them. I'm one of the Peloton group of people, <laughs> but I say, you know, spend some of that time outside of the saddle. Don't sit the entire time because if you're just sitting straight on that crotch, that pelvic floor, it's good. That pudendal nerve, that nerve that travels through your pelvic floor is going to get aggravated. Um, it's funny. I have like really random stories. Like I have this lady, this guy who ride, rides a horse in Ecuador and that's like his main travel. And, uh, I told him stop riding the horse and his pain went away. I mean, it wasn't like rocket science to me, but I have a patient who she wears scrubs all day. Right. So she sits, she's an anesthesiologist. She sits all day. The scrub line was the seam was irritating her pudendal nerve on the right side. And we just had her change her scrubs inside out had her switch to a, a job that was like more uh, not sitting as much. So she had shorter cases. So she was working um, like she was doing like EGDs and it was just much faster. And her pain started. I mean, we, I also treated her pelvic floor, gave her some nerve medications and now she's off of them. But it's a lot of trying to, trying to change your habits um, that's aggravating your pelvic floor. So sitting can be like a, a huge one. The big elephant in the room is the endometriosis. Obviously, majority of our patients with pelvic floor dysfunction have endo. Um, and that's, you know, uh, like a big thing. And then there's the vaginismus patients, the unwanted, um, the contraction of the pelvic floor muscles. And I am sure that's all you talk about on this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, whether it's primary vaginismus or secondary vaginismus, it's huge. Um, and I'm sure like every topic, at le every podcast at least once mentions that word. Um, what else? Um, I mean, we have, we see everything, the vulvodynias or like the vestibulodynias and whether it's hormonal mediated or it's nerve mediated. So, um, we're seeing that and then chronic constipation, um, levator ani, just more specific towards the anus. Um, the constipation is like, a, it plays a huge role. And then, you know, we'll see women with colitis and, um, you know, that's less, less common, you know, less you know, less commonly discussed or perhaps colitis patients don't realize they have a pelvic floor and they're not necessarily getting treatment. Mm, so good. So, you know, what I would love to hear a little bit more about is how you treat vaginismus. So, you know, uh, we know, and as you know, of course, um, that vaginismus is the involuntary contraction of the muscles surrounding the vagina and in fear of uh, penetration, anything that might cause pain, right? So they're fearing the pain with penetration. And um, we know that there's a big psychological component to it. 
that's where the intimacy coaching comes in. But also, of course, there is the pelvic floor part of it. And that a lot of patients, you know, will go see the pelvic floor therapist. Um, so what would be a time where I say somebody would go to a pelvic floor therapist as opposed to a physiatrist? Or would it be like you could go to either? So, well, that's where we, like I, I work with a ton of great physical therapists and, and I think a really good physical therapist knows their limits. Um, if they know, like, I can't prescribe, I can't um, image, I can't, and I, or, you know, sometimes they're treating it at like as pelvic floor dysfunction, but they don't recognize that like, hey, this could be actually endo, maybe we should start going that route. Um, because, you know, sometimes patients present like vaginismus, but it's actually just hypertonia. Um, it really just depends on the patient. So what I do is majority of the times the patients find me, whether they're coming from pelvic physical therapy is because they are limited by, they can't get any further with the pelvic PT. So if that's the case, that's when I add things in. So I have had patients who come in, I'll have the whole conversation. I switch them from plastic dilators to silicone dilators and they start to make improvements. Or I get, give them suppositories, whether they have a muscle relaxant in them, or I give them a nerve medication in their suppositories, depending on what their symptoms are. And then if a patient is making progress, great. If, you know, we, I work alongside PT. So like my residency, everything we did as physiatrists was always with physical therapy. So in the world of pelvic, the physiatrists came after the pelvic PTs. They, they've been around for like 20 years and the physiatrists are now like, hey, knocking the door. Hey, we, we actually want to, we want to be involved too. So um, we will do injections to the pelvic floor. Um, we'll do, you know, guide them on dilator therapy. Um, when I see a patient, like I get a, a whole bunch of, I call them my like high school graduates in like May, June, July, and they're going to college in August and they want to have sex when they go to college. And so they come usually, the white girls come with their moms. The Muslim girls definitely do not come with their moms. Um, usually the Muslim girls are coming in their 30 years old. So just so you're realizing they're not usually 18, but um, I get a whole bunch of them because they're like, I want to have sex and I can't, I had this boyfriend when I was 16 or 17 and he's never been able to get in. He's never been able to put a finger in nothing. And we do a treatment protocol where, and I can do this for anyone at any age, but obviously I'm just talking about that, my younger group, because they're like confused. They don't know what vaginismus is. They're like, I don't know what's going on. And we do sometimes psych psychological medication. So like an SNRI or SSRI, if that's what's needed, um, sex therapy, obviously, if that's what's needed, pelvic physical therapy. And then if they need um, a muscle relaxant vaginally, dilator therapy and or pelvic floor trigger point injections. And we work weekly for six weeks to get them to the point where they're doing the dilators. And if they get to progress to the size they need to, whether it's the largest or, you know, sky, I always tell the young kids, sky's the limit. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, and then there's a wand. The wand is used to help with the deeper muscles. So for thrusting pain. So a lot of times when young people don't know how to have intercourse, they don't realize that there is the entrance and then the thrusting. So you can't just focus on the entrance because you will eventually have to come back for the thrusting pain. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And of course, so let's talk a little bit about endometriosis. Now you said, you know, definitely we know that, well, you and I know that um, endometriosis is where you have, you know, endometrial lining or the tissue 
um, that's inside the uterus that actually goes outside. They think that it's due to retrograde flow. So basically when women have menses, they believe that some of that blood will go backwards and out the fallopian tubes and then implant somewhere in the pelvis. So it can be anywhere in the pelvis that it implants. And, um, and sometimes they just think that the endometrial tissue kind of just happens. I mean, I don't even know. Exactly. I think the most you know, important thing that I talk to patients about is that there's four major reasons why we have to take out endometriosis. Because a lot of people are like, but you know, my periods aren't that bad. It's like one to two days, you know, you know, I, I do this, like, I'm sure you do this every day too, but it's, it's like counseling for the patient. What is your goal? Do you want children? Do you want them when you're younger? Do you want them when you're older? Is the period pain really, really bad? Are you concerned for your menopause? And and is there a chance that it can turn into an ovarian cancer? So the reasons we take out endo are, are important and they're big, but it's also very important that we get, catch it early if children or fertility is important. And also if you're having a ton of symptoms like painful sex and chronic constipation and urinary frequency and urgency and that painful periods and painful ovulation. And, and is the painful period now prolonged? Is it five days before the period, five days after the period, plus the period. And now it's like three weeks out of the month, you're having pain. Um, I have daughters, so I'm like very on hyper alert for my girls because I see this all the time. And I honestly don't think it's one in every 10 women. I think it's probably a one in every four or one in every two, because there's no way. I think it's just so misdiagnosed. It's, I mean, I have like a group of friends and like three out of the group of friends already has it like diagnosed with, with surgery. So I feel like it's way more than, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's more? Yeah, I think that uh, definitely, I think it definitely can be more. I, I agree. I think that a lot of women are misdiagnosed, but you know, as you know, with endometriosis, the amount of disease doesn't always correlate with the amount of pain that a patient has, right? So oftentimes you don't know, and definitive diagnosis is based on actually seeing those lesions and taking a biopsy. So a lot of times people are um, not willing to have surgery to make sure that whether or not they have it. So then what we're doing is we're treating it based on symptoms. But right, so a lot of times as an OB, we'll see it when they present with trying to conceive, trying to have a baby, and then we get an ultrasound and we notice an ovarian cyst, right? So that endometrioma, which we know is already like stage three at that point. So it's tough because you're right, it is a difficult diagnosis. And unless you're really in tune and thinking about it, um, it can get missed often. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, told a 26 year old today that she had an endometrioma, which means she's either stage three or four. And I'm like, you're 26. And her main concern is fertility. So, yeah. you know, it's like, have a baby right this minute, or have surgery, but don't go through IVF. Because I mean, I all I de all I see is so many patients having IVF before they have their endometriosis removed and then having failed transfer, failed transfer, failed transfer. I feel like um, a lot of people are not missing endometriosis, but you know, I've been through the fertility workup. It is, it's not always, you know, they're not really probing some, a lot of times on endometriosis. And I think because like that's often missed. And when you're in the, in the baby making mindset you often are just like this is my goal i need a baby i but you put a put aside all that i'm having painful sex i'm having urinary frequency i'm having chronic constipation and so you know a lot of the times the doctors miss it and they don't recognize that you could have endo 
Um, yeah. But, you know, I will say, though, for women um, that are trying to conceive and haven't, you know, for us as OBs, like if, it, if you're older than 35, you know, definitely we recommend going see an infertility specialist. And if it's been a whole year without being able to conceive, you know, we'll have a patient go see. And a lot of times when they go see that infertility specialist, one of the first things they do do outside of, you know, a hysterosalpingogram and an ultrasound and perhaps your case was different. Um, but a lot of times they will do laparoscopy, especially if they, because a lot of, I remember in my residency, uh, all of our lectures actually on endometriosis were by infertility specialists. And it was because they were the ones that were doing a lot of the laparoscopy on patients uh, that were trying to conceive. So a lot of times, you know, the pain, I think, can be confusing to diagnose if you aren't having any other symptoms and if you're not trying to get pregnant. But, yeah. um, you know, oftentimes when they do go to infertility specialists, um, those specialists will end up doing, oftentimes, actually a lot of times, will end up doing the laparoscopy, which then, you know, oftentimes um, shows and then it's confirmed that they have endometriosis. So, but yeah. each person's workup is different. Everyone's workup is so different. Um, and it's, yeah. it's also like goal driven, what they're looking for. Some people, maybe they're told, hey, you could have endo, but do you want to do a surgery? And they're like, no, I want to do a cycle. Let's try transfer. And, you know, it's just, you know, as long as everyone knows the word. So my whole goal is anytime a patient comes in, I say the word endometriosis. So they're not walking out saying, I've never been told that word in my life. Yeah, so then sure. they can take that information. I always say knowledge is power. Take whatever knowledge you get from this and look it up, figure it out, you know, get your fertility levels checked early. Um, I think it's just really important because I think like, especially in our Muslim, you know, population, there's such a huge stigma with infertility that nobody's really talking about it. And everyone's just like, let's just pray that we'll get pregnant and we'll call it a day, but knowledge is power. And we need to know our numbers. We need to know our values, like just like our cholesterol, you should know what your cholesterol is. Um, it's, it's scary these days. Like, you know, maybe it's cause I'm getting older and everyone's like, people are just getting really sick now. I'm like, everyone should know all their, you know, go to your primary care, go to your doctors and get your tests, your levels checked for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, are you talking about, um, like your estrogen level or what level? AMH, and I know AMH isn't necessarily like a total predictive value, but like, you know, getting a, a sense or even like carrier screens. I always tell people now, why have a Russian roulette baby? Go get a carrier screen. Make sure you and your partner don't have the same thing. I think it's just that science is so wonderful to have um, that option that, you know, you know, I've had I've had loss. I've and I wish if I didn't if I had known things, I wouldn't have had those losses. That would have been great. So um, I think, you know, the science is wonderful and insurance is covering some of this stuff. So. Yeah, I think though the the issue with the carrier screening is that oftentimes, again, I think that you know it's definitely not um, general OBGYNs that are doing that. I think it's mostly infertility specialists that end up doing like carrier screening and um, even actually high risk doctors. They'll you know because if a patient has a recurrent loss will send patients oftentimes to um, high risk doctors that will then work them up for like recurrent loss. And then they will definitely do like the carrier screening, they'll do the chromosomal analysis, you know, they'll do all of that to figure out why, you know, a patient may be having recurrent losses. So yeah. No, I was gonna say like kind body, kind body is like, 
on every corner now in Manhattan. Like, I feel like now I tell patients, just go over to Kind Body and get your carrier screen done. And it's so easy now. Like, I feel like it's like go getting a blow dry. It's like, like the dry bar of, of fertility. It's what, literally what, um, you know. I've never heard of that. What is that? Kind Body? Um, it's a, it's like the, the yellow, uh, their decal or whatever their, um, their logo is. It's like literally like Kind Body's near the next to the dry bar. I'm like, oh, you could just go over there. And they're great. The doctors are wonderful. We met with them and you just go in, you get, they, they'll, they'll give you like, it's like when you, when you choose like the type of hair blow dry you're going to get, they have like a list of like fertility treatments. I, you know, consultations, like you want to have just like your carrier screen. Do you want to get the whole AMH? Like, I'm like, this is great. Like, I wish this stuff was available when I was 25. It's hilarious. I had no idea. So well, I guess you learn something new every day, right? <laughs> But that's fantastic. So um, any parting words or, you know, pearls that you'd like to tell our listeners in case they're having either experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction and things to look out for, like red flags or anything like that, that they should be concerned about. And then, you know, definitely go and speak with a healthcare professional. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny because I have good friends who follow me on Instagram, you know, at Dr. Ty Ahmed. And they literally don't realize that I talk about endometriosis. They're like, but you're not a GYN or, um, and you'll, they'll say like, I didn't realize this could be pelvic floor dysfunction. So if you're in that scenario where you're feeling like you're not being heard by your, whether it's your primary care, your GYN or your urologist, I mean, I, you hear this all the time. Medicine is not what it used to be. Doctors are being overworked and we're just like not able to give the attention that patients necessarily need. Don't give up. Keep looking. Keep talking. Google. Find things. Reddit. I'll use all the resources you have to see if you could potentially have this thing. Pelvic floor dysfunction is very much undiscussed, unheard of. There are lots of GYNs and urologists who, who will tell me. I have them as patients who will say, we are not taught about this in residency. Um, we're you know focusing mostly on cervical cancer and pap smears and surgery, and we're delivering babies like OBGYNs have a huge responsibility. And I always tell patients, I'm not searching for cancers and infectious diseases. And, and so, um, you know, there's always something that someone might do more specifically, and you can always reach out to any specialist, but get that information. If you have any questions, you can always search our website, pelvicrehabilitationmedicine.com. And um, that's it. Don't give up. Awesome. Well, actually, I was just going to ask you how patients can reach out to you if they, you know, wanted to get in touch with you. So I think you've given us some of that, but why don't you um, maybe just go ahead and say that again. So I know you said you were mentioning your social that you're on. Um, so Instagram is at Dr. T-A-Y-M-E-D, A-H-M-E-D. And um, our website is pelvicrehabilitation.com. I'm in the Great Neck and Long Island, uh, Manhattan locations. Um, and yeah, you can reach out on, on Instagram, um, or, or on, on schedule appointment if you're interested in being seen. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for coming on. I know that I learned tons and I'm sure that our listeners did as well. So thank you so much. I appreciate yeah, your time. For having me. I, I love, I love this conversation and, uh, it's super, it's, it's, it's important for men also to, um, have access to this information. So I'm, I'm glad we talked a lot about them too. 
Yeah, I am too. So thank you. And well, I am done here. So this has been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you are experiencing pelvic pain, make sure you go and speak with a pelvic floor physiatrist or you go and speak with your healthcare provider and that they can refer you to somebody that can help you. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.